So to, uh, we'll continue now to, just to, uh, on, th on this theme, um, and I'd like to uh, invite uh, Sinead Gleeson, uh, who will be moderating the next section. Uh, Sinead, some of you know, is a broadcaster and critic who presents the book show on RT Radio 1. She writes about arts and culture review books for the Irish Times, and as most of you know, she recently uh, edited uh, The Long Gaze Back, an anthology of Irish women writers, which won the best Irish published book of the year at the 2015 Irish Book Award. So I uh, welcome Sinead Gleeson. Hello there. Um, I'm going to be speaking to Andrew O'Hagan, uh, who's the author of five novels, including Our Fathers, which was shortlisted both for the Man Booker Prize and here in Dublin for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. Um, his most recent novel, The Illuminations, was longlisted also for the Man Booker and is being made for TV. Um, he's worked also in theatre himself. He's worked with the Scottish National Theatre. Um, his play, The Missing, was produced uh, in 2012. An adaptation of his novel, Be Near Me, was also uh, is being produced by Donmar Warehouse. Um, in his work from the novel Personality and uh, to another of his works which tells the story of Marilyn Monroe's life from the point of view of her dog, um, he's very interested in the line blur between fact and fiction and he does this a lot in his substantial body of, of journalism and essays for the LRB um, where he's also editor-at-large. So today's lecture focuses on manifestations of the self um, in the age of the internet and the ethics of storytelling. So please welcome Andrew O'Hagan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to see you all. This is called Stealing Lives. Disloyalty started early with me. I was a spy in the womb. But in year three, my skills as a reporter were already causing mayhem. I say reporter like I knew what I was doing, but Mrs. Doherty was a tireless advocate of the intentional fallacy. To all my teachers, indeed, the truth was self-evident, requiring nothing of the teller except that he speak up. St Luke's Primary School on the west coast of Scotland in Colwinning was a place of facts, exemplified by the blatant fact that Christ had died for our sins. So the writing of our weekly news book was expected to involve revelations from the real world. And Mrs Doherty, the teacher, hovered like an osprey over our simple offerings, the black beak of our pen, ready to dive on any fiction. Her voice pressed every verb into italics. I cannot thole the make-believe, she would say. I just can't stand it. O'Hagan, you have a terrible tendency to make stuff up. There she was, scanning us, four rows of cow's licks, hair lips, and national health spectacles. The world is interesting enough without your lying. <laughs> I stepped up to her desk and presented my jotter as if it contained the Pentagon Papers. Young O'Hagan, she said, boring into me with her yellow eyes. You're not afraid to clipe. Is that it? Are you? You get down into the mire and tell us what's going on that we don't want to know about. <laughs> my mum is fat and quite jolly, I had written in my newsbook. 
She has blonde and black hair, more black than blonde sometimes. <laughs> Last night, when my dad came home drunk, she whacked him with a pan or something and he fell over the poof and then we all watched the telly. <laughs> my mother never forgave me for that, especially the blonde and black hair part. I now wonder if the teacher wasn't just a valiant harvester of local gossip with that newsbook carry-on. She liked us to write the truth, but the truth, then as now, tends to be more debatable than consumers will generally allow. For reasons implied by the contents of my newsbook, my father didn't often make it to parents' night, <laughs> but my mother did and was duly mortified when Mrs. Doherty drew her attention to some of my frontline reportage. That one's full to the brim with imagination, Mrs. Doherty. I wouldn't take anything he writes seriously. <laughs> I remember my mother saying with a face like fizz that if I didn't stop telling the truth, I'd have to be removed from the school. <laughs> And on the way home, she told me that some things were private, Andrew. Things are private. Do you understand what that is now? That it's you and me and maybe, well, maybe your brothers, but I can't guarantee that I would even tell them. You can't go telling strangers your business. Forty years on, I'm still conjuring with that problem, telling people your business. A writer's career begins at the point where he or she realizes there is no such thing as private property when it comes to stories. The stories of ourselves or our families don't belong to us. They belong to the world or the world of experience or the history of things as they were. And they have no owners. Yet however many times you say this, there remains a notion, a little ethical niggle that permission is not really a given and that each person might claim copyright on what happened to them. Common sense will always suggest that people have a right to protection from the recording instincts of the published writer, but the field of life writing is covered in broken bodies, many of whom said they would fight for silence or for balance. Writing is among the last of the great natural tyrannies, where each author will call himself king or queen of all he surveys, only to be challenged by other authors with their own sovereign claims. Writing is a force of will that draws not only on the ego of the author, but on a common fund of free speech. Yet we might note that speech is freer for some, of course, than for others. And well-known authors have a license that is fully weaponized, both to press for its own observance and to take up its own defense. I won't insist on it. I simply recognize that we say what we mean to say and let others live with it. A writer's job is not to feel his way through the sensitive minefield of possible responses, but to cut deeper, to go further, sparing not himself, nor anyone he cares about, in order to get it right. Scott Fitzgerald could no sooner leave Zelda out of his writing as leave her out of his mind. And yet we still ask, what was hers? What was his? 
And what is ours now? Reading him, reading her. When I was working my first book, a non-fiction work called The Missing, a personal account of missing people, I ran myself ragged trying to find sources for everything I was saying. When the book was published, things were quiet at first, but then they got quite lively. The book was serialized in The Guardian. There were television adverts, then a documentary film. One of the children I'd written about, a boy called Sandy Davidson, who disappeared, aged three, on a housing estate not far from where I grew up, was named in a solicitor's letter that came to me one day from a firm representing his mother. My sense of the boy's story was of a shared sadness, a community nightmare. The mother had moved away from her old address and had found it impossible to locate her. The letter that came was full of a sense of possession, that Sandy was hers and that his story was owned by his family. I can understand it now. I think I even understood it then and could even understand the financial value that some would place on such ownership because that was part of the picture. But the hardest thing to say, and I still believe it, is that Sandy's story was not hers. We don't own our children's experience, even when that experience is dreadful or newsworthy. It feels like we must somehow, and indeed, Every day in the news, the parents of lost or suffering children are presented as an awful and heart-rending metonymy, representing for all of us, for everyone, for the world, the dismay, the agony of themselves among all parents, among all human beings. And their sense of possession is the guarantor of that authenticity. You can't know what it feels like until it happens to you, is the mantra. Of course, they feel it most strongly. Their agony is real, bigger. They're at the center of a story that might never end. And of course, their instinct to protect their child will extend very naturally to a need to control what is said about the child and how it is said and where. Yet however subtly and with whatever care, a writer must not prioritize that claim. For the story of a human life is beyond possession. Over a long series of decades, it has been proved on this stage better than any other that a private life and a public life aren't as separable as you might want them to be. These parents might feel you're stealing their life, and maybe you are. An Irish novelist recently said on the radio that every family member thinks it's them and it probably is in a novel. And that you must simply tell them that it's yours and that the book will be coming out next Tuesday. In drama and fiction, though not in poetry, people are moved instinctively to locate the voice with the author, to call him him and her her and wield a big stick in defense of privacy. But art doesn't understand privacy, except as a subject. Life writing starts from the proposal that the lives you're writing are not taken, but given. We might believe, as the great biographer James Boswell did, that good writing can not only give life, but give it in perpetuity. 
It's really a question for philosophy, whether Kitty Kelly took Frank Sinatra's life or gave him more of the thing he loved, celebrity. The matter depends on whether you believe more than Plato did and as much as Descartes did, that human beings have a self over which they have proprietary rights. So long as you do not libel a person, are you not free to study them as much as you might study the flora and fauna of East Timor? Was Richard Elman trespassing when he speculated on the question of Oscar's marriage to Constance Wilde? Was Mary McCarthy betraying her family when she wrote memories of a Catholic schoolgirl? Memories of a Catholic girlhood, I should say. Or was she merely exercising a basic right of the artist to remember freely? The answer, as with most things, is probably to be found in the calmer bays of both opinions. Do we run scared when we see that Alan Bennett's account of Mrs. Shepherd, the lady in the van, has made it to the screen, asking ourselves whether Maggie Smith's portrayal might be an affront to the real Mrs. Shepherd and all that she believed was true about herself? The story of Mrs. Shepherd, after all, was part of Bennett's story and arguably part of everybody's story. I remember Mrs. Shepherd. I was around uh, in London at that time and uh, remember her sticking her cane out of the van when you walked past. She was the most aggressive and unlovable person among a city of aggressive and unlovable people. <laughs> and I couldn't have imagined then that she would ever become such a sympathetic uh, human being deserving of the full sort of lacrimose uh, brilliance of Maggie Smith. But there we go. She's on at the cinema near you as we speak. We take it for granted that the truth is never plain and really simple, and we thrive on it. You can, ha you can have sympathy for other people's sense of ownership, but you wouldn't want to give in to it. That, for me, is where the rubber hits the road. I'm trying to speak honestly about this business. Writers are given to a certain churchiness on this subject, pretending that they understand, of course, and it's terribly painful. Of course, I wouldn't trespass. They trespass intentionally and with dedication every day. If you don't want to do that, don't be a writer. When you've written for a few years, you begin to see that a subject can choose you, actually. It feels like that, just as much as you choose the subject. And you can't defer to other people's sense of possession once it possesses you. If their life belongs to them, then yours also belongs to you. And what if part of your life involved, say, watching in your youth the young Scottish singer Lena Zavaroni when opportunity knocks five times in a row. What happens if her fame and her story entered your consciousness and stayed there? Is that experience yours? Or is it Lena's and Lena's family? And if you grow up to be a novelist and create a character based on Lena Zavaroni, is that a creative act? Or is it a wholesale manipulation of someone else's pain for your own ends? Discuss. <laughs> Again, it's both. And nothing in my life feeds an ongoing sense of ambivalence the way my relationship with story does. When I began in 1999 to write Personality, a novel inspired by the story of Lena Zavaroni, I felt I was making a study of the plastic arts of British light entertainment. It's sinister nature as we've discovered, even more sinister than I thought in 1999. It's cheap pizzazz, enfolding it by stages into the magics of personal history and social fact. I was clinging to that, 
That was the hope. The family, in what we call with a smart real life, um, were at first very excited. Uh, they spoke to me willingly, but then they felt I needed permission. Then they felt they should be paid. When a tabloid newspaper turned up at their door um, and told them a lie, that I'd been paid a million pounds by Faber and Faber, the great joke of all time, of course, <laughs> the idea that an independent publisher um, paid a million pounds for a novel. Bring it on, I say. But um, it had nothing to do with me, that story, nothing to do with my book, and really nothing to do with them. But the tabloid ran a front page story about their pain and about my ad advantage taking. The family came to feel I'd stolen Lena's life and given it to the world as a bookie of lies. We don't have time to let Oscar Wilde enter stage left and describe again to us the complicated dance macabre between truth and lies, but for them, it became real and a very good friendship and a very understanding cooperation turned into a nightmare. Now, it seems that Lena didn't belong to herself or the world or to her family. She simply belongs to silence. And that's an understandable position too, though not mine. A certain kind of essayist is a novelist in plain clothes. You can occasionally gain access to a living problem in the area of unreality by facing it head on, interviewing it, turning it over in the mind of your prose for as long as it takes for it to become clear. That would be how I'd describe my time working with Julian Assange. If I stole his life, it was at his invitation, and also with a strong sense that all writing is ghostwriting. When I was invited, to help him by, invited by him to help him with his memoirs, it seemed on the face of it exactly the kind of thing I wouldn't do. But my intuitions knew better, though God knows I later doubted them. You're supposed to be helping me write my book, Assange said to me one day when we were trapped in this house in Norfolk for five months. <laughs> but in fact, I'm helping you write your book, he said. I want you to be my chief of staff. Yeah. Well, are you the president now? I said. Don't be like that, said Assange. Assange was nothing if not insightful, and my interest in the question of life's ownership met a test case in him. He didn't understand, and still doesn't, as I stand here, that people's perception of him and their opinions of him are not necessarily driven by propaganda or informed by hatred, but by their own intelligence and close reading. And if everybody is a text, then we are texts that can be read freely and interpreted according to our own lights. I wrote a novel about Marla Monroe from the point of our dog, Mafia, as you said, believing that Monroe, the most written about woman of the 20th century, had doubly lost her life and become an embodiment of simple human desires. We can inspect her no more easily then we can expect the grain of a mirror. There was comedy in that too, for me, as well as the obviously tragic. But it was essentially the comedy of life writing, that we are thieving the unthievable and never really seeing past ourselves until a dog comes along 
It was amazing to me that that tradition, it's a very strong tradition in Scotland, uh, in Spain, it's a bit of a tradition in Ireland too, of humans not being able to see each other so that, until an animal comes along who can speak. Um, Cervantes was very much into it. Um, and so was Robert Burns, of course. We're very close to Burns night, so I'm going to mention Robert Burns occasionally um, for two days away. Um, Boswell's giant biography only has 90 pages. In an 850-page book, it only has 90 pages on Johnson's childhood. And that's for a good reason. Boswell wasn't there. And the great inflection of himself that Boswell craved was not to be found in the byways of Litchfield, but in the pubs of London, where he spent many an hour with Johnson. You wouldn't go to a biographer for selflessness any more than you would go to a priest for asexuality. <laughs> it's not that the biographer has no self or the priest no desire, but that by transferring the essential atoms, they reify the predicament of being and wanting. The good ones do that at any rate. The bad ones just tumble in their own denial. The best life writing depends on novelistic brio, I'd argue. It depends on the idea that reality is nothing without the imagination. The great American poet Wallace Stevens suggested that reality didn't exist, couldn't exist, would resist existence without the imagination. But try applying that to your average family and see what happens. First chaos, then tears. The fact that a few literary prizes might come between the two won't soften it much. When a writer is born into a family, the family is finished, wrote Evelyn Waugh. A comment he made without relish and I quote with even less. Letting people rest in peace might be admirable as a concept, but it is sentimental and wrong for a writer. For whom sentiment is just another hazard like bad commas or a frozen screen. Only in life do people imagine you can move on by forgetting things. Only in life do people believe you can set your children free by concealing the truth from them. A writer was born to kill all that as surely as he should kill his darlings, and we approach our families, I'd argue, with no less love, but with no great instinct to spare them from what, they, what the mind can turn up. The family is free not to read you, but they're not free to censor you, and they shouldn't try, because blood's thickness will often be no match for ink's indelibility. If you have talent and the will to use it, then you must. And you'll occasionally stand appalled by your own determination. When it comes to writing, you'll protect your material as a diver would protect his oxygen, knowing that without it, life on the surface is the only life you can feasibly lead. To some, we will always be barking hare, stealing lies for low ends and claiming the virtues of silence afterwards. But there you have it. Graham Greene said we are born with a slither of ice in the heart. But it's not the slither that bothers me, it's the iceberg in the conscience, the feeling that nothing could persuade me from my vocation once I've started. I steal lives because they are mine to steal, just as they are yours to steal. And the joy of writing is in the certainty that I would let anything founder Accept the story.
A family member could advocate deletion and discretion as taking nothing away from literary interest in the naked truth. They have their reasons, of course, and they're good ones if showing the family in a good light is one of your causes. It's an admirable cause. Many people have it, pursue it, honor it. Few first-rate writers do. Saul Bellow was always dismayed by the family members and wives who hated being written about. What dismays me is Bellow's failure to conjure with the possibility that what he did was morally indefensible. I mean, surely, in lectures as much as in anything else, a writer is required to deal with the deep moral ambivalence about what they do, not just in the certainty of what they say. Bellow used everybody and felt his prose would settle the score with any puny complaint. Here he is writing to his old friend Dave Peltz, who's thinly disguised as Woody Selbs in the story A Silver Dish, as George Zweibel in Humboldt's Gift, and in another novel, Bellow Abandoned. What matters, Bellow wrote to him when he complained of being used, is that good things get written. You know, we've, we've known each other 45 years and told each other thousands and thousands of anecdotes, and now on two bars suggested one of you, by one of your anecdotes, I blew a riff. What harm is there in that? Your facts are unharmed by my version. Your facts, three or four of them, got me off the ground. You can't grudge me that and still be Dave Peltz. Now, David, the nice old man who wants his collection of memory toys is not you. The name of the game is Give All. <laughs> A writer of talent, often beginning at home, will ransack the house from attic to basement, look in every drawer, read the labels in the bathroom cabinet and examine the dog's eyes for captured images. The writer whose imagination is strong will take every scrap of veracity she can find and she will do it serially in the belief that storytelling is deeper than memory and yes, the ink is thicker than blood. Any professional writer after a few decades at the coalface will have stories to tell about alleged betrayals or the dismay of people who wish to control what you write. You go after them and then they go after you wishing you hadn't, they hadn't spoken, wishing you'd told it differently, asking for proprietary rights over something they suddenly feel belongs to history and the world, they didn't want that. In the drama of people's lives, a writer is a con artist whom they would wish to convert. And when that fails, he's a traitor who said too much in print or used material that was off limits or made stuff up. The fatal assumption in every relationship between subject and writer is that the writer is your friend, but the writer is the reader's friend or the audience's friend. And his instinct isn't to protect the proud family from its indignities, but to capture the full Ibsenite glory of all. The instability of life has always interested me, and celebrity only enhances instability. I started by writing about missing people and moved to idealists and our fathers and child celebrity and personality, where you might imagine visibility, not invisibility, was the problem. But people can disappear inside their own lives, as Marilyn did, quite spectacularly, or as the photographer Anne Quirk does, in a full state of quietness, 
in my most recent novel, The Illuminations. You could argue that each of these lives was stolen long before it got to it, long before I reached it. Each was subject to its own damage and its own reconstruction. And that for me, that for me is worth all the ink in the world, that process. I feel that our own period, let's call it the post-internet age now, has given rise to new forms of identity theft and self-deletion, which brings some of the matters that I've been talking about here to a new place. I tried to write about that in relation to someone called Ronald Pinn, a dead boy whose grave I found by accident one morning in South London. I was just walking through a graveyard in winter, and I saw the graveyard, the grave, marking the death of Ronald Pinn, aged 20, in 1984. I looked backwards for Ronnie's story and found that he'd left precisely nothing behind. He died before the internet. When you put his name into Google, it came up with precisely nothing. I fashioned a story then that went in two directions. First, back into his real past, the sad life of an excellent young man who died at 20, and second, towards a new, invented Ronnie Pinn, who took up a life on the internet and became, in a way, more visible, more out there than his real counterpart ever had. I invented a new Ronnie, the way so many people are invented now on the internet. Facebook recently announced, by the way, in support of my point, that 60 million of the accounts they reckoned on Facebook are fake, fake people with fake names. I got Ronnie a fake passport, a tax number, and all sorts of identifying material, but he was just an invention, like a man you might find in a novel. One morning, after months of conjuring with the fake and the real, I took a very real tube train to the very end of the central line to meet Ronald Pinn's mother. I ended my story on her doorstep at the point where I mentioned Ronnie's, names, mentioned Ronnie's name and her eyes widened with recognition and she brought me inside. But there was a modern epilogue I'll share with you. I went into the house that day and she welcomed me with tea after tea. She treated me for two hours, well, like her 45-year-old son had come home to her. You're just like him, she said. He would be like you now. He would have a tie. Are you happy? She showed me pictures, and I snapped them with my phone, and we spoke about the police assuming people's identities at Scotland Yard. We talked about how that could happen. And I edged her towards the fact that it was happening now. She didn't hear it. We spoke about the job of a writer and what we did to try to give life to people. That was tricky and I tried to explain that my job was speculative and outrageous, but she didn't hear that either. She wanted Ronnie to be discussed and for me to write something and for me to find out everything and bring him back. 
She wanted Ronnie to be remembered. I don't think she ever really understood that I was stealing Ronnie, that I was playing with his essence and not even giving him a new name or writing a novel about him, but doing what those police did and testing the reality of the times. It seemed worth it to me, but then it would. I kissed Mrs. Pinn as I left her house that day and we promised to be friends and send letters, have a dinner out together and have life together. We had plans to have some future that would honor the real past, but the person who writes those stories is always ready for a summons. It came one day after the Sunday Times reported on my story, now published, and that a great fuss was being made of the story and it was being discussed around the land. The publicity changed Mrs. Pinn's mind instantly. It made her see what she hadn't seen before. And I turned up again. You took my Ronnie, she said. He was mine, and you took him. I read it in the paper. What are we going to do now? But the person whose life you really steal is your own. I went to see Norman Mailer in Provincetown in the last summer of his life. It uses you profoundly, he said to me, about writing books and essays. There's just less of you each time. You can send yourself into others and you can take a brass rubbing of your very soul, but your own life gets thinner, just at the point where they ask you to appear in who do you think you are. <laughs> Truman Capote spent the last 25 years of his life as a ghost of his former self, a white ash version of his celebrity persona. And I find I look forward to an altogether paler version of that. Maybe that is when the writing really begins, the new writing, when there's nothing left to hide, no selves left to steal, and only the bare, honest fact of your own dear shadow in the rooms of your house. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, we have a short period of time, so I'm just going to jump right in with a question, if I may. Um, writing is undoubtedly an act of free speech, but it's very complex, as you've outlined uh, in, in what you were talking about there. But do you think that writers have the right to unreservedly write what they want to, say what they want to? I think they must, um, but at the same time, uh, I, I hope that, you know, among all the braggadocio that comes with me talking about it today comes a real sense of, um, you know, I mean, it's merciless, but also have a tremendous sense of the rights of the other. It's just that they don't apply to me. Um, I mean, it's, not everything in life is black and white like that. I think one of the values of a conference like this, of an occasion like this, I should say a symposium, is that it gives us a chance to actually dive into the, 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 the crack between certainties to live in the ambivalence, and there is ambivalence to this. Every time a play is put on, 
There is the question of where did that material come from? Who are the people who feel they might have ownership? People felt this of Chekhov and Ibsen, you know, and, and Singh as much as they do of writers today. This is an old problem. And yet it's one that we should fertilize in new ways. And I wanted to just crack it open today, not because I think I have the solution. I really don't. I'm fully guilty. But like most people who are recidivists, I'll return to the scene of the, not only the scene of the crime, but I'll enact new crimes um, because I'm not sure that you can do it any other way. In fact, I'm sure you can do it another way, but those are bad books that take too much account of what families say. For example, families have their own version and it's often, it's the most feelingful version, but it's very often the most party pre as well. And there are thousands of stories every day in the news where if you were to rely on the family's sense of ownership, then justice would not be served, for example. You talked about navigating your way through the sort of the, the fact and fiction and people stories that you came across, and also the idea that sometimes a writer can choose their subject, but their subject can also similarly choose them. Has a subject ever chosen you that you've backed away from, that you've closed the door on? It happens a lot, actually. People, beyond a certain point, if things have worked quite well in a writer's career, people will come to you with publishers, agents, you know, uh, individuals. Um, I've been approached to help quite a lot of quite well-known people with their books and in every case have said no, simply because that's another form of being controlled usually. Um, the, I mean, you're always under conditions of forced control, um, even if you think you're the most liberated person in the world. There's always something pulling at you. It might be your Auntie Betty, who you know will be mortified and it has a stranglehold on a paragraph. Um, or it might be a sense of common decency or, you know, um, that the subject is more complex than you have the ability to serve. There are all sorts of reasons to say no, but I do say no quite often to those because sometimes they're just beyond you. I mean, people from the, since I've started publishing those long essays, like the one I described to you, the Assange and the, the Ronald Pin, and then one about the secret history of the BBC and things like that, then a lot of people have come asking me to, to write book-length studies of things like that. But, um, I think if you're going to be a writer, you need to write the books for yourself. You need to write the books that are, you're propelled in some inner way to write. Um, when you mentioned Ronald, you talk about him being born in, in the pre-internet age. And for most of us, the internet has been around for maybe a third or a quarter of our lives, depending on your age. Um, how do you think the internet has, has impacted on the way we tell stories? Because there, there's a permanence to it now, and yet people don't think when they, they tweet or they put up an update, they think it's something that's it's, it's a throwaway thing, it's an off-the-cuff thing. But how do you think the internet has changed how we tell our stories? Uh, there was a demonstration of this the other day. I'm, um, I'm working on a big, big project at the moment, and it's, it's in secret, and it's a sort of spy world that I'm in, and it's quite hair-raising. And, you know, uh, so I was in this... Uh, there's this secret flat that we're working from anyway. Uh, I hired secret a flat? Yeah, there's a secret flat in Piccadilly. Uh, too long to tell you. <laughs> anyway, um, but I hired, this I hired this researcher, and it was a former student of mine, really clever. He was the cleverest student I hired, and he, he graduated and was looking for work. And I said, come and work for me for six months. And we, So anyway, we're, we were in this situation, and I said something about, he was saying, how did that work in that year? I said, well, I had, to get out, I had to get the car to stop and I had to go into a telephone box and phone the person. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, I had to phone. I said, well, then I realized, I was like, he's 21. You know, it's like there was no mobile phone. 
You know, I couldn't Google anything. You know, you had to actually, when I worked in the Fred and Rosemary West case in Gloucestershire, which was a terrible case, I remember arriving in that famous, now famous street um, in Gloucester, Cromwell Road, number 25, and the world's media, as I thought of it, I was 23, you know, ruby-cheeked and ready to go, as Seamus Heaney used to say, of a, a young ne'er-do-wells. Um, and I arrived at this door and there was an enormous throng of, of cameras and media, and, um, and it's, it felt like the very cutting edge of technology to me. But actually, they were finding facts, as it were, for the first time. They weren't, none of them were on the internet, none of them were relying on that. They were coming to the house where the crimes had been committed so as to be able to describe the house. They couldn't Google image it. They could, you know what I mean? It was, and explaining that to Josh, my new researcher, has been a hilarious experience because he's these things that we could just sit in this flat and eat pizza and just like, what, you know, Google everything. And I'm like, no, no, you need to go and meet human beings. He's like, why? We can Skype them. I'm like, but when we go, on, we go on a plane, Josh, we fly to Florida. We find where they live. We, 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 I write letters in advance. We go and meet them. He's like, but why? They're, surely they've got Skype or maybe FaceTime. So that's what you're facing. Um, well, to finish, how would you feel if uh, you heard on the grapevine that a writer was writing a book about a, a middle-aged Scottish writer who lives in London, who's friends with Edna O'Brien, and um, how would you feel about that? I'd have to take it on the chin. Would you mind? No, I would, um, I'd steer well clear of it, because I think it's, um, you know, it's their job, it's their not only their job, but their responsibility for getting it right. I wouldn't be talking to them on the phone every morning. I mean, it happens in journal journalists come and write profiles of you. Sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they're not. But, you know, I try and, you know, I'm a friendly guy. I'm happy to sit down and talk to the best of my ability about it, but I'm not going to start giving them all my old letters. Not because I don't think they should have them, because it's their job to find them. <laughs> uh, and on that note, thank you so much to Andrew Higgins.